Luke chapter 7. Here's what tonight's about. First of all, our study through the Gospel of Luke is helping us to understand Jesus better, to get to know Him more. And that's so important even for us as Christians. Secondly, I'm sure there's some folks here tonight and maybe some who will eventually listen to this message on podcast that you are struggling. You're going through a difficult season right now in your life. Maybe you've even gotten to the point where you think God doesn't notice what's going on with me or my life. God, God doesn't care about me. God has sort of just left me to struggle through this on my own. I want to reinforce tonight through the study of this passage that Jesus not only sees what you're going through and cares deeply for you, but He has the power to do something about it. The two stories that we're going to look at tonight in Luke chapter 7 deal with Jesus, first of all, healing someone who was at the point of death, and then secondly, actually raising someone from the dead. Now in this first passage, in the first ten verses of Luke chapter 7, this all centers around what Jesus is looking for. Remember, because this study is also a study about how Jesus makes disciples and what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to do, first of all, is direct your attention down to the end of verse 9 of Luke chapter 7. And you'll see this phrase where Jesus says, I tell you not even in Israel have I found such faith. The word found there is a key word because it means that Jesus is looking for something. He was looking for faith in Israel and he didn't find this kind of faith amongst the people of Israel in general. But he did find such great faith in this Roman centurion. And that's what this is all about. Jesus wanting to find faith in people, especially in those who claim to follow him. In fact, if you go over to Luke chapter 18 for just a moment, you'll see that this is something that Jesus was looking for the whole time he was on earth and even will be looking for as he returns. The very last phrase of verse 8 of Luke 18 at the end of this story that Jesus gives us here in Luke 18, Jesus says these words, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? It is a reminder to us. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for faith. He's looking for simple trust and confidence in Him. He's looking for those who will literally rest all of their weight, of all of their life, all of their being upon Him and rest in Him. That's really a good definition of what faith is, resting all of our weight 
on him. Not some of our weight, not, not carrying some ourselves, but literally resting all of our weight on Jesus. So before we get into some of the particulars, I, I, I want to just share a few sort of side lights of these first ten verses back in Luke chapter 7. First of all, notice it says, after Jesus, first one, had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum. I wanted to point this out. This is something that I don't do a lot of times is go into a little background. But let's not forget that Capernaum was Jesus' ministry headquarters for the three years of his earthly ministry. Though he grew up in Nazareth, his headquarters for his earthly ministry was Capernaum. He chose Capernaum to sort of be the headquarters and launching pad of what he did. He did more miracles in and around Capernaum than anywhere else of a specific location or place. He did more teaching in and around Capernaum than anywhere else on the map. That is why later on, at the end of his ministry, Jesus says these amazing words. He says, Woe to you, Capernaum! For if the works that were done in you would have been done in Sodom, they would have repented. And Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than it is for you. And so Jesus, again, is revealing to us that the greater the light, the greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. And though he chose Capernaum to be his headquarters, it also meant that the people that lived in and around and saw all these wonderful things were going to be held more responsible by God. Now, there's a couple things here about this centurion. First of all, let's note that he is obviously a Gentile. He is a Roman. He's part of the occupying force of the Roman Empire in Israel. And most of the time, they were not very well liked. He would have been in charge of at least a hundred men. That's why they called him centuri, that they called them centurions, century, because at least a hundred men were under their authority. Something else to note here, and I think it does play into our story tonight, is that they were not allowed to get married. If they had the responsibility of a centurion, they were not allowed to be married. And one of the reasons was because they would not be home. They would spend, they signed up, if you will, for a stint of 20 years somewhere in the far-flung empire of Rome. So it was sort of even in the Roman mind like unfair for a wife and children to grow up for 20 years without their husband and father around. So they were not allowed to marry. So the reason I bring that up is because that meant that for centurions, many times, their servants or their slaves were their family. They were very close to their servants and to their slaves. And you see that playing out here. This centurion had a regard for his slaves. He wasn't like a lot of, you know, maybe the centurions or, or Romans or whatever, even Jews, who had no regard for household servants and for slaves and could care less about what happened to them. This man really cared. So let's read. A centurion there, verse 2, 
had a slave who was highly regarded, but who was sick and at the point of death. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly, He is worthy to have you do this for him, because he loves our nation and even built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I want to point out something. Jesus is getting ready to do a miracle. Jesus is getting ready to show who he is to a greater degree. And yet, it is in the atmosphere of this man's humility and of his understanding of grace. And the Bible teaches that. That God moves in an atmosphere of humility and grace. The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you'll notice that even though this man is a centurion, that to this Jewish prophet, that he was humble in his approach to Jesus. And notice that even though he was leveraging this relationship that he had with Jewish elders to approach Jesus, and they came to Jesus and said, hey, if anybody's deserving, if anybody's worthy of you doing something good for them, it's this guy. Look at all the good things he's done. And yet this man, this centurion, says, send this message to Jesus. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. He understands that whatever he's asking of Jesus, it's going to be done because of the grace that is extended, because of the favor that God is going to extend through this man, Jesus. Not because the centurion deserves it. If you and I want to see God move in our lives and in the life of our church, we have got to maintain an atmosphere of humility and understanding grace. When we start to think we deserve certain things and that we have all these expectations, all that sets us up for is discouragement and, and a lot of unmet expectations. God will always move, though, in the atmosphere and environment of humility and grace. And you'll see something else here. This centurion understood the culture in that he knew that being a Gentile, if this Jewish rabbi would enter his house, he would be defiled. And so it's almost like, too, he's saying, look, I, I don't want you to come under my roof because I know that that's going to cause you an issue, you see. So he, he gets it, if you will. He, he understands, and he's trying to move, and he's, he's trying to show respect for this other culture and, and for their ways, and obviously for Jesus. But there's one main thing that sticks out here. Again, what's Jesus looking for here? He tells us, I'm looking for faith. He says, I have not found this kind of faith even in Israel. It's something God is always looking for in his disciples. 
He's looking for us simply to trust Him and place our confidence and to rest fully in Him. But again, how does that happen? It happens, again, in the soil, if you will, of the Word. In receiving the Word of God and in expressing the Word of God. And I want you to see this from these ten verses tonight. First of all, go back to verse 1. What do we see Jesus doing again in Capernaum? He was teaching. Again, the word that we talked about last week, Rema. It is the living and powerful Word of God. It is the Word that establishes and grows people's faith if they will receive it and be open to it and embrace it and welcome it. And so you always see Jesus expressing, if you will, the Word. If you and I are going to have our faith established and grow in faith and be people of faith who trust in the Lord and have our confidence in the Lord and truly rest in Him, it all starts with with receiving and welcoming and embracing this living Word of God that is very active and actually has energy in it. It's not the Word of man, it is the Word of God. It is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews uh, chapter 6 when he says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. It cuts all the way through everything and gets down into the innermost parts and inner recesses of our being. It can go anywhere because it's alive, it's living, it's powerful. And if you and I are going to be people of faith, we've also got to come to that place where we understand the Word of God is powerful. And as His disciples, let's express the Word of God. Let's build an environment of the Word of God in our lives. And that's why worship and the Word is so important. Because we literally can speak out the Word of God into places and we literally can change the environment and the atmosphere. We can change our own lives, our own attitudes, our own perspective simply by receiving the Word of God and declaring the Word of God out. Teaching. But notice it doesn't stop there. Notice it says about the centurion in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, that's all he did. He simply listened about Jesus. He never actually heard Jesus himself firsthand. He heard about Jesus from another disciple. And that's all it took to begin to establish and sort of imberth faith in this centurion. That's why it behooves us as disciples to be speaking the word out and to not only receive it ourselves and, and listen to it, but to express it every opportunity we can. Because we don't even know somebody could just be listening And all they have to do is be open in their hearts and their minds to this living, powerful act of Word of God, God's voice. And all that can start to do is establish and build faith in their lives. They don't even have to listen to Jesus directly, just like they don't have to listen to you and I directly. That's why we podcast our messages. Because it's amazing how you can just start to just send the Word of God out into all these places. That's why, again, music and worship and songs are so important. Because they literally take the Word of God and truth and just disseminate it and, and, and just diffuse it out there in, in everywhere it goes. And people can start to sing along and, and, and hear these words and 
it can establish and build faith in their lives. Again, that's why worship and the Word are so important together. So Jesus was teaching, and this man was hearing, so much so that it's amazing the faith that this man had, even though he was not a Jew, he had no sort of spiritual foundation in his life, he was a Roman centurion, He never actually heard Jesus firsthand. He just heard about Jesus from someone else. And yet notice the faith of this man. After he says, verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not presume to come to you. But listen, look at this. Instead, Jesus, say the word and my servant must be healed. Say the word, Jesus. By the way, this word, word, (laughs) in verse 7, is different than the word rema for teaching up in verse 1. This Greek word is preeminently used of Christ expressing the thoughts of the Father through the Spirit. It is the same word that John uses in John 1 when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It is that which is supernatural. And so notice here in this passage, you have both the spoken Word of God and you have the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And this man has gotten to the place simply by hearing about Jesus Christ where he truly believes Jesus is who they're claiming he is. And I believe that this Jesus that I have heard about has the power to heal my servant. And therefore, he just simply sends along a delegation to Jesus and said, Jesus, I believe that your word is so living, so alive, so powerful, has such authority that all you have to do, Jesus, is say the word. And my servant, notice what he says, must be healed. That, that whatever my servant is suffering from, whatever illness, whatever you know, disease, whatever thing has him infirmed, is under the authority of your word. Say the word. Oh, that we could have that kind of faith. To truly believe in the power and the authority of the Word of God. And notice he goes on to specifically tell Jesus through this delegation that he sent to Jesus just how much authority he thinks Jesus' Word has. Because he says, I get it, Jesus, verse 8. I too am a man set under authority. I have the power to act in this Roman government. I exercise authority over the soldiers under me. I can say to this one, go, he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. But he's also saying, that's as far as my authority goes. It is given to me by the Roman government. That's my authority. That's the end of it. That's the boundary. He says, you've got authority from God. And therefore, you have power over things like illness and disease and all these things. You have a greater authority, a greater power than me. And all you have to do is say the word. If you study the word of God, there's only two things that the New Testament teaches us that Jesus ever was amazed at or marveled at. Only two things. 
faith and lack of faith. That's the only two things that the New Testament ever records that Jesus was amazed at. And notice, Jesus, when he heard this, verse 9, he was amazed at him. The word means to marvel, to wonder, by implication to admire. Jesus admires faith. And Jesus will always respond to faith. In fact, God will always do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think when He sees faith in us. That's why it's so important that as His disciples, we learn to trust Him. We learn to place our confidence in Him. We learn to rest all of our weight in Him and on Him at all times. Because that's what Jesus is looking for in His followers. Which is why He turned and said to the crowd that followed Him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, such strong conviction, such confident response to what God has revealed. I haven't found such trust. I haven't found such confidence, such belief, such resting in me and and, and believing that my word is so powerful and authoritative. And the Bible says in verse 10, so those who had been sent returned to the house and they found the slave well in good health and sound. And notice Luke, who's a man of great detail. In fact, I think that's why I love the gospel of Luke more than any other. He was a doctor and he paid attention to all the details that Matthew and Mark and John sometimes omit. That even this detailed person does not tell us whether Jesus even said a word or not. It doesn't tell us that Jesus said anything. All it says to us is that when they went back, the slave was well. Almost dead early on and now well. This passage shows us that Jesus is looking for faith and that Jesus responds to faith. But it also reminds us, and this is the link now to the next passage, That Jesus regards us and pays attention to us and is accessible to us and and cares about us and has concern about us because Jesus could have said, I don't care about this Roman centurion and about his slave. I've got better, bigger things to do. But he stopped. He listened. He engaged with this delegation of this Roman centurion And he healed his slave. And what this teaches us is that Jesus not only cares, but has the power to do something about it. You know, it's one thing even for us as human beings to sympathize and empathize and, and, and to try to enter into what other people are going through. And we can say, you know, you know, all these wonderful things. But the thing is, we've got limitations. We don't have the power to necessarily change anything. But Jesus does. And that's what this passage reminds us of. He not only cares, but He has the power to change things. Sometimes it's to change the circumstances. Sometimes it's to change us. There was an old gospel song written years and years ago. I know that because I think I was in my 20s when it came out, so that's been many years ago. But the 
line that I will always remember from this song is, sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes God calms his child. Sometimes he doesn't calm the storm. Sometimes he simply calms the child. But here we need to know that God has the power to do either one or both. And that's what Luke wants to remind us of, who Jesus is. Do you believe tonight in your circumstances that you are facing right now in your life that all Jesus has to do is say the word? And that through you being exposed to the word and receiving the word and expressing the word, you have placed yourself in a position where you can trust God no matter what you're going through. That you can rest in Him. That you can place your full confidence in Him. Well, let's move on to verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And as He and His followers were going into the town of Nain, there was another delegation sadly coming out of Nain. His disciples and a large crowd went with Him. And as He approached the town gate, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of His mother who was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Now why this is significant, and Luke does give us these details, is for this reason. In that culture, for a widow now to have lost her only son would have reduced her to beggary. In in that day and age, that's where she would have ended up. With no husband, and now her only son dead, she would have ended up a beggar. And picture the scene. This little town called Nain, not too far from Capernaum. Jesus now is leaving Capernaum for a while, and he and this large crowd are entering the city, and here comes a funeral procession out of the city to take this young man to the burial ground. And Jesus sees this. In fact, it says this, verse 13, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. I want to stop and pause because this is important. First of all, the word saw means to give attention to, to have care and concern for her. See, Jesus, whether we believe it at all times or not, He sees us. He is always regarding us and paying attention to us and always has care and concern for us. There are many people who see us but don't see us. You know what I'm talking about? People who can be looking right at you and you're sharing your heart with them or what's going on and you know they're, they're just, they're, they're, just gla- they're not paying, they, they're not really with you. They're not seeing you. Maybe you've been that way with others where you're engaged with them and you're seeing them but you're not really seeing them. The Bible reminds us here not only of the power of Jesus in the earlier passage but of the heart of Jesus here. He sees you. He always sees you. His eye is even on a sparrow. His eyes are always on you. He always pays attention to us. There's never a time in our life, no matter whether we believe it or not, where Jesus takes his eyes off of us and where he loses his attention upon us. And then the word compassion for her. This is that Greek word that speaks about the bowels. (laughs) And why 
the Greeks and the Hebrews used that terminology is because when we, when we love like that and when we have compassion for others, when all that, it, it affects our bowels, our gastrointestinal system. When we're worked up that way, that's where it is. It's in our gut. And the word literally means to be moved, to feel for her. Jesus not only saw her, he was moved by this whole situation and he felt for her. But again, that's not where it ends. Jesus doesn't just feel for us, he has the power to do something about it. And before he raised this young man from the dead, notice what he says to her, do not weep. Now, he doesn't say that in a cold way like many of the philosophers of Jesus' day when they would say to a, someone in, in a funeral procession, do not weep because it doesn't do any good. It can't help. That's not why Jesus told her not to weep. He told her not to weep because he was about to change her circumstance dra- drastically. Then the Bible says he came, verse 14, and he touched the beer or the coffin. Now, this is important because just like Jesus, according to their culture and custom, would have been defiled as a Jew going into this Gentile's house in the previous passage, the Roman centurion. Oh, my goodness. You want to be defiled? The worst defilement a Jew could ever have was to touch a dead body or something that had touched a dead body. They would be impure for weeks and have to go through all these purifications and cleansings and all of that. And here Jesus just comes up and touches it. And by the way, the word that is used here speaks about impact touching. What I mean by that? Well, you can touch someone, someone can touch you, and it really doesn't make a difference. But there's times where you are touched by others or others literally are touched by you and it literally changes something or changes them. And that's the kind of touching that's talked about here. It is the kind of touch that alters or changes someone or something. I can only imagine what this widow who thought now her only son is dead and she's getting ready to go to bury him, what it meant for Jesus to touch her. And I'm sure when he did, he probably was looking in her eyes with all of that love and all of that compassion and and seeing her in such a way that I'm sure even before he raised this young man from the dead, she was beginning to see his heart and who this man really was. He wasn't just an ordinary man. Then he came and touched the beer, and those who carried it stood still. I'm sure they were shocked. What is this man doing? Doesn't he know that he's defiling himself? And he says, young man, I say, get up. Arise. And notice, verse 15, even the dead hear Jesus' voice, because the dead man sat up and began to speak. Isn't it amazing that sometimes those of us are alive and wide awake, can't really hear the voice of God, but the dead can hear it? And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I love that. 
In fact, it's the exact same phrase that is used of Elijah in the very same instance back in 1 Kings 17 whenever Elijah was with the widow and, and her son died. And remember, Elijah took him up to the upper room there and he prayed over him and God raised him from the dead. And Elijah comes back and literally gives, the Bible says, her son back to him. Same thought here. Jesus gave him back. It is a reminder to us that God has the power sometimes to give back what we've lost. Sometimes we think we've lost things and we'll never get it back. Jesus has the power to give it back to us. Hope you remember that. Verse 16, fear sees them all. A healthy reverence and respect for God. And guess what they began to do? Worship. <laughs> Praise and magnify God. Glorify God is what the Net Bible says. You see, God wants to work in our lives in such a way and at such a level that worship is, is like, well, duh, of course we're going to worship. Instead of trying to drag people to worship, it's like worship is just the extension and expression of who God has become and the reality of God in our lives and what He's doing. That's what worship should be. And notice, they don't really know who Jesus is. Any more than the centurion really knew all that Jesus was. And let me end with this. Why do I say that? Let's go back quickly to the centurion. Because though the centurion had the faith to believe that Jesus had the power to heal his servant and say, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word and my servant must be healed, he didn't really know that Jesus would have also come to his house and eaten with him. Jesus would have done that. That's the kind of Jesus Jesus is. That's the heart of Jesus. Jesus would have come into this centurion's house he wouldn't have cared about the, the defilement and a Jew entering into a Gentile's house because Jesus can't be defiled by all that external stuff. And he tried to teach us the same thing. It's not what goes into us that defiles us. It's what comes out of us. It's our heart that's the problem. Jesus would have eaten with that man, but he didn't know all that Jesus was. And they didn't either. Even after Jesus raised this young man from the dead, notice what they say in verse 16. A great prophet has appeared among us and God has come to help his people. In other words, God has come to help us, but he sent us this great prophet. No, no, no. No, God has visited them himself in his son. Emmanuel, God was there. He was God. He wasn't just a great prophet. And I love that line, though. God has come to help his people. That's the key verse or key phrase of the second part of our teaching tonight, verse 11 through 17. That's what God wants us to know about him. He wants to come to help us. The word help literally means to visit in order to care and provide for. God wants to visit you. And he wants to visit us so that He can care for us and provide for us. 
This report about Jesus circulated, spread, was diffused throughout Judea and all the surrounding country because that's what disciples do and that's what God looks for in disciples. Those who will spread the testimony of Jesus to others. Why? Because it is living and powerful. And not only is the written word powerful and the spoken word powerful, but the the living word of God, Jesus Christ, is powerful. And you and I speak about Jesus and talk about the name of Jesus and all of that. There's power there. It can change things. It can change lives. Remember, all the centurion did was just hear about Jesus from somebody else. And it was enough to establish a faith in this man that all he said to Jesus was, I believe in you, Jesus. All you have to do is say the word and my servant must be healed. So in the first ten verses... The key phrase is, I tell you, not even in Israel, verse 9, have I found such faith, because that's what Jesus is looking for in followers, faith. The key phrase in the second part, God has come to help his people. In these two passages we've looked at tonight, we see the heart of Jesus, we see the person of Jesus, and we see the power of Jesus. And Luke wants to introduce us and help us to understand who Jesus is so that we will trust him and have confidence in him more and more. Again, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what struggle you may have. You may be at a place where you think, God doesn't see me. He doesn't care. He has no concern. These passages tonight want to build that faith back up. They want to reinforce and sustain and strengthen that faith. They want to show you tonight, Jesus has never taken his eyes off of you. He always sees you. He always pays attention to you. He always cares. He always has concern. He may not be calming the storm in your life, but He'll calm you if you allow Him to, if you have the faith to believe and trust and have confidence in Him. Because He has the power. If He doesn't choose to calm the storm in your life, He has the power to calm His child. Let's pray. God, we thank You for these wonderful stories of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to go back a couple thousand years and put ourselves in these, in these scenes. They're so powerful. They have so much to tell us and to teach us about, about Jesus. And God, they just want to bring us to a place where we'll come to just believe in Him and trust in Him more. That we truly believe He loves us more than we could ever imagine. That He cares more deeply about us than we will ever know that He always sees us. When others don't, He always does. And that He has such great power. Everything in this universe is under His authority. There is nothing outside the authority of Jesus Christ. Whether He speaks the Word, whether He thinks the Word, Jesus has the authority to change a total atmosphere and a total environment, a total heart, in a second. And so, God, I pray tonight that as we leave this place, that more than anything, we will rest all of our weight in Jesus. These things we pray in His precious name. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks for being here.